This podcast is sponsored by GCK Consulting, a next generation political consulting firm. From fundraising to polling to campaign strategy, GCK is helping get millennials elected all across the country. To learn more about GCK and their services, just go to gckconsults.com. Again, that's gckconsults.com. All right, now to the podcast. Welcome to the Millennial Politics Podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Valerie. My pronouns are she, her, hers. And today I'm joined by Henry Kramer, progressive activist, organizer, and housing fellow at Data for Progress. Thanks for coming on. Thanks so much for having me, Jordan. Of course. So first off, to contextualize this conversation, could you tell us about your background in housing policy and advocacy? Ironically, I don't have a, a deep background in housing advocacy policy until the last couple of years. My background is in community organizing. I, uh, I worked starting in 2008, uh, working for an organization uh, in Oregon called The Bus Project that engaged young people, millennials, in uh, electoral politics, in democracy, in voter registration, uh, voter engagement, and voting rights, and uh, worked in that for four years, uh, helped architect and then run a campaign for automatic voter registration in Oregon, then ended up being the first automatic voter registration campaign in the United States, the first automatic voter registration policy, uh, that is, and helped bring it to the country, and, and uh, then spent about five years helping start similar young people's political power organizations around the country uh, through the Alliance for Youth Action. Left that uh, last year, but in my last year at the Alliance for Youth Action, uh, helped build a campaign called Broke AF, uh, where I worked with a variety of uh, young organizers around the country who were identifying the main drivers of economic pain for young people. Uh, housing ends up being one of the largest contributors to young people's economic pain, anxiety, and uh, lack of ability to, to get ahead and really manifest the American dream. It's incredibly underrated. There's a huge amount of energy there. And that uh, immediately got my attention. As I started engaging more in the issue, it became clearer and clearer to me that housing was uh, potentially the most underrated political and policy economic issue in America today. And I've focused the last uh, year or so of my uh, political and policy writing and volunteer work on uh, housing. And can you lay out the problem for us in detail? How exactly is housing insecurity affecting millennials? Millennials are acutely experiencing a housing and especially rental housing crisis that is really impacting a tremendous proportion of the country. Uh, one of the things as I was looking into it last year, we found, uh, and I will talk about millennials in a second, but we found that in basically every state, there are more cost-burdened renters than there are people without health insurance, people that are unemployed. Like most of the indicators that we use to understand if a community is in economic turmoil or if a, a particular subset of people are experiencing economic despair, uh, uh, housing insecurity was the widest ranging contributor to that. It, it affected the most people. Millennials in particular experience that partly because by and large, we do not own homes. Uh, we are the most likely generation to uh, and I think the first generation in decades or potentially a century to be less well-off 
than our parents, uh, the Great Recession created a uh, a tremendous amount of of wealth loss, especially amongst the middle class. So uh, a number of folks who previously would have had a, a pathway into home ownership at uh, you know at a millennial age uh, or you know at, at a young age of, of millennials have none, and so they're stuck in a rental housing. Uh, context. There's nothing wrong with being a renter. In many ways, it's a, a totally reasonable value proposition. The, the challenge is that when there are a ton of new renters, and the, the last decade saw a huge spike in people renting versus owning, that creates a, a surge of need for what looks like about a, a, a 9 million home shortage across the country, uh, particularly a rental home shortage. So that ends up driving a, uh, a really terrible, vicious cycle where the everybody, every renter is competing against every other renter to get a very small number of, of units, of, of homes, and particularly uh, puts it in, uh, in a context where the most affluent renters end up taking all of the av- uh, available rental housing, ends up driving up the costs for everybody, and hurts more than anybody else. Uh, folks without major sources of income and major sources of wealth, that ends up being disproportionately millennials, disproportionately people of color. What policy work have you been doing over the past years in regards to housing? Really the first foray into housing, I wrote a piece with uh, Sean McAuley, who's one of the founders of Data for Progress, where I'm a housing fellow now. Uh, He and I wrote a piece in The Nation uh, about a year ago, simply calling on Democrats and progressives more broadly to recognize housing as a political issue and start running for office on housing. Uh, A third of the country, over a third of the country, are renters. A majority of them are uh, housing insecure, or or at least uh, cost burdened. So you have a tremendous portion of the population who are disproportionately the democratic base who are experiencing this huge issue and uh, this huge problem. And we have a a set of folks who are ostensibly progressive, at least call themselves progressive, who aren't speaking to that lived experience at all. By the way, if renters had turned out at uh, a commensurate level to homeowners in 2016, Hillary would have won in a landslide. So simply the fact that renters aren't turning out to vote is actively hurting uh, Democrats and and by extension to some degree, hurting the progressive movement and certainly our ability to uh, stave off creeping fascism and and, uh, create some some progress for working people uh, and struggling people in this country. Uh, so the first step was just identifying that there was a huge problem that if progressives, uh, and particularly candidates for office, were focused on solving, it would create uh, a tremendous political opportunity and policy opportunity to actually start addressing these issues uh, by getting elected and then you know being held accountable by the renters that elect you to actually work on uh, improving renters' lives. So part one was just pay attention to the issue at all. Thankfully, now we have a couple of folks who are paying attention to the issue. Um, We've got Kamala Harris, uh, Cory Booker, and Elizabeth Warren who have put out housing plans to to greater or uh, lesser quality, but uh, they're at least running on the issue. To talk about the particular things that need to be done, I think there's basically four pieces of housing policy that uh, or four problems that housing policy needs to address, or four things uh, that need to be addressed in a comprehensive housing solution. One is providing immediate li- immediate relief to renters. 
you know, uh, on its own, this can be problematic, and I'm happy to unpack why. We've got a lot of renters who are paying 30%, 40%, 50%, 60%, and in many cases, higher of their income just in rent. That ends meaning that folks are uh, by you know they're passing up spending money on transportation, spending money on food. There are folks that are on the the edge of hunger or homelessness because of how much they're spending in rent. In the short term, we should get some cash in those folks' pockets to make their lives just a little bit easier. And by the way, to create some uh, some leeway for the more comprehensive reforms to take effect. Uh, I think another thing you could do in terms of providing immediate relief to renters is uh, at the federal level incentivizing uh, rent stabilization policies like uh, just got passed in in Oregon, uh, preventing no-cause evictions and capping the amount that uh, a landlord could raise rent every year at at a reasonable rate. The federal government can at least incentivize that. States could start doing it themselves, and I think they should. Uh, The second is making it possible to build enough uh, affordably sized homes and affordable homes for people to live. Like I said, we have uh, a 9 million uh, home shortage in the country, which is a huge problem. Uh, if we had that level of shortage in any other area, uh, in food, in transportation, people would be losing their minds. But somehow, because this is affecting renters who have been historically disenfranchised, uh, it's only now beginning to get attention. So we need to make it possible to build enough homes for people to live. The primary thing that is constraining our ability to build enough homes for people to live is uh, exclusionary zoning that uh, we also sometimes call apartment bans. Uh, what that is is about a 100-year-old policy that was put into place uh, by Herbert Hoover and uh, a set of white supremacist capitalist cronies that uh, created a, a context where a community could, and in fact was uh, encouraged to, make it so that only the most expensive type of housing can be built in that community. Most expensive type of housing is a, you know, a large, single-family, detached home. Uh, this is the, the kind of suburban, uh, a white suburban utopia picket fence thing uh, with two-car garage. That, that is far and away the most expensive form of housing. There's a lot of places, including in a lot of cities, where the only way you can live in that community is if you can afford that kind of home. Banned a lot of things like building duplexes, triplexes, fourplexes, uh, small apartments. Just legalizing those things could make a tremendous difference. The next is creating solutions outside the, uh, the private housing market. There is, there is a role for a fairly regulated market that is uh, reformulated to center renters rather than centering landlords, which is what it does right now. Uh, and property owners more generally. We also need to have uh, available housing options outside of the private market. That's uh, social housing that's built in partnership between the the public sector and the nonprofit sector. That's also expanding public housing, which we haven't done in a long time, and we should absolutely start doing it at a more aggressive level. We could meet uh, a tremendous amount of our need by expanding public housing. And one thing that's great about uh, expanding social and public housing at the affordable level is that also by extension, and there's been a a decent amount of study on this, ends up making housing cheaper at every other level as well. If you build a lot of lower income housing, permanently affordable housing, it makes market rate housing cheaper too. And the last is dealing with the the financialization of housing. We have context in, in a lot of our big cities, but in a lot of places as well where private equity firms are uh, are buying up uh, rental housing and behaving the way that private equity firms do, which is 
gouging customers and behaving as generally bad actors in the economy. At the same time, you also have hyper-wealthy people who are parking assets in uh, apartment buildings in some of the most uh, highly valued real estate in the country, which takes units off the market, contributes to that 9 million home shortage. And what that's really just doing is it's effectively a, uh, an undertaxed bank account for wealthy people in the United States and abroad to park their assets. What we need to do is make it uh, either impossible or at least much more painful to do that. And that'll free up units. It'll probably generate some revenue for the public. And it should contribute to the definancialization of the housing sector. There's other stuff, but trying to paint in broad strokes in five minutes, that's my take. I'd like to frame this conversation with some ideology. We're increasingly hearing folks in the progressive movement refer to housing, like healthcare, as a human right. Why is this picking up steam now, and what exactly needs to happen to make that value a reality? I think it's picking up steam now because it's a fairly obvious thing. When you think about Maslow's hierarchy of needs, you you know, food, shelter, clothing, basic health, if it's not possible to live a, uh, a dignified life, a, a high-quality life where your likelihood of not suffering um, is, is decently high, without that thing, well, that should be a right. It is effectively impossible to be a, a healthy, successful, uh, however you want to define it, uh, happy person without adequate, safe shelter. So housing is most obviously a right. Now, how we manifest that, I think is a tough question. You know, there's, there's a reason that the uh, litany of things I just laid out at you took five minutes instead of uh, saying Medicare for all for healthcare, which you can say and describe in you know, a minute or less, because housing is an extremely complicated, gigantic thing uh, that requires a you know, kitchen sink approach. I think there's a lot of people who approach housing as a, well, if we just use this one weird trick, you'll be able to, to solve the whole problem. Turns out that's really not how rental housing and housing in general works. You need to have a multi-pronged approach. Uh, I would say how you manifest housing as a human right is one, the, the state commits to ensuring that uh, every individual uh, has an affordable safe, uh, stable home, and then you pursue a, uh, a litany of policies to uh, accomplish that goal. You know, one of the big complaints about Obamacare and one of the reasons folks blame it for being so unpopular off the bat was that it was too confusing. It was too complicated. People didn't understand all these moving parts. How are you working to ensure that the same thing doesn't happen with housing policy? I mean, I think it's a tough question. Um, I think almost any major reform is going to have a little bit of that. Like, we're, If you're dealing with the, an, an economy in a country the size of the United States, things are going to be complicated. Uh, I think part of the, uh, a couple of the ways that you end up needing to deal with it is that fundamentally, the explanation is pretty simple. You need to protect and stabilize renters. You need to build enough homes and you need to take uh, bad actors out of the housing market. That's kind of it. Now, how you do it at a policy level, uh, piece by piece, is, is complicated. 
but I think you can actually sum it up in a, in a soundbite or two. Uh, the other piece is uh, the reason that I lead with the give immediate relief to renters is that the other things that are going to take time to, to really make an impact do take time to make an impact, whereas uh, relief for renters can be felt immediately and create political space for uh, all the other more comprehensive reforms to, to really uh, make themselves felt in, in, the, uh, in American housing. Uh, that said, and what I would like to say on, on the sort of whenever I'm talking about Pay about cash for renters, about you know, any kind of renter subsidy, be that tax credits or, or direct payments, is if you just do that and you don't fix all the other elements that have made a really perverted housing economy, you can end up with just giving a bunch of public money to landlords because there's no constraint on how much they can raise rents, either through, a, like through any kind of rent stabilization or through having enough homes that... Uh, tenants have a, a much stronger hand in negotiating. And when you say remove bad actors, what exactly does that mean? So I think, I mean, it's a lot of what I was talking about, about the uh, at, like folks that are parking assets, folks that are, uh, uh, you know, that are using land just to speculate rather than to, to live or to, you know, use it for its, its best possible purposes. Uh, I think part of what you need to do is get folks that are, are looking at a, a booming housing market and, uh, and seeing that as a, a chance to uh, get even richer rather than as a, uh, a problem that we need to solve because it, the existence of jobs seems to also create the, a, a, a huge uh, gap in terms of the ability to, to live near those jobs. If you've got folks that see that situation and think money and profit we should be doing as much as we can to rein in or remove entirely those bad actors. Um, you know, there's some constitutional things that, uh, or constitutional preventions to say, like, you know, this person just can't own this property. What you can do is make it, uh, make the context, uh, the sort of the policy framework, the way that we build the housing system and the housing market, you can make it so it's a lot less attractive for, um, you know, the, like, Saudi royal family uh, or uh, or Bear Stearns to buy up a bunch uh, or uh, Blackstone to buy up a bunch of, of homes and then gouge the prices. And you do identify as a socialist. How does this play into your perspective? I identify as a socialist, a social democrat, uh, as, as, a, as a you know left flank member of the Democratic Coalition. I, I'm less uh, hung up on the specific labels, but I would say that you know I I am certainly when you lay out where folks land in the the sort of center left space i would say i'm pretty pretty far on the left i i mean i believe that every mechanism of the uh federal state and local governments should be running at undoing uh long standing crony capitalist and white supremacist uh and otherwise oppressive systems I think you can do that in a variety of ways. I think there's a huge role for the public sector. I think there's a huge role for, uh, for remaking uh, markets to center the experience of working people rather than the experience of affluent property owners and other folks with large uh, elements of concentrated capital. I think a lot of that runs through housing. You know, we've got a housing market that was designed uh, 
for you know about a century or more to one undermine the ability to build class consciousness by keeping people separated from each other in single family homes and suburbs two that uh made it impossible for uh people of color and and other oppressed and low income communities from taking advantage of uh of amenity rich neighborhoods and the upward mobility that comes from through apartment bans and exclusionary zoning and i think you have a a set of implicit veto points uh at every level of housing decisions where affluent property owners uh get to say we don't want low income people to live here uh whether or not they say that explicitly it is what they are saying when they're protesting the uh the building of affordable housing in their communities or the ability to build uh fourplexes that are homes that working people can actually afford in their communities all of that roots in a feeling that uh the government should be focused on uh centering their decisions around the lived experiences of working and oppressed people uh, i i don't think you can care about uh that without caring about housing and and every element of the housing gender that i laid out and do you think that the sentiment that housing is a human right is that compatible with capitalism i mean no i think the i think the de- like we use a lot of definitions uh and i've talked about this uh elsewhere like on twitter and whatnot um that a lot of people are using a huge variety of definitions for socialism for capitalism um if we're talking about the like the crony capitalist uh economy that we currently have uh in most if not every place in the united states um where wealth and affluent and privilege is how the market has been uh designed to benefit if we've uh crafted every economic decision to make comfortable people more comfortable uh and affluent people and rich people richer uh well no it it doesn't doesn't comport with that at all if you like if the question is can you have uh can you manifest housing as a human right using uh, a robust combination of public sector and a radically uh restructured uh market public private partnership nonprofit and private sector yeah i think you can i i i don't think that you need to uh, abolish private ownership to manifest uh, housing as a human right partly because i think that's not going to happen anytime soon so we need to come up with solutions that are going to make life palpably better for people in the near term um and i i think almost everything i laid out is i mean that exists in a lot of other countries where they you know they have private ownership and they also have robust public ownership and in many cases you you need both or at least it can work with both and really getting into the specific policies you mentioned Oregon um you know in California in New York folks are really focused on housing policy what positive progressive policies have we seen um either set in place or pushed for yeah i mean there's a bunch so I live in Oregon, I live in Portland, um and I'm really excited about what's happening in Oregon. Um Oregon is doing I think a brilliant thing, which is uh attacking renter greed and racist uh exclusionary zoning at the same time. So they just passed a bill to uh to ban uh no-cause evictions 
and uh, and set a rent cap uh, rent increases at seven percent uh, per year, which is too high. I hope that they ratchet it down over time, but it at least does create a uh, some kind of predictability. Uh, so they just passed that. That's been enacted. At the same time, they are working on a bill to uh, legalize missing middle housing. That's the duplexes, triplexes, fourplexes, uh, small apartments uh, in every city, in every neighborhood above 10,000 people. Pursuing those two things together is a tremendous innovation. Uh, there are some critiques that I think are often unfounded. There's sometimes some grains of truth in them about uh, about rent stabilization and rent control uh, that are largely wiped out if you also deal with the shortfall of houses, which is what the legalizing missing middle housing does. Uh, at the same time, if you just legalize missing middle housing, you really don't deal with a lot of the pain that people are feeling. You need a multi-pronged approach, like I said, and the fact that Oregon is really explicitly pursuing a multi-pronged approach in an aggressive way, I think that's really exciting. You know, I know that there's a movement in New York right now for, for universal rent control. It's not a thing that I understand nearly as well as the exclusionary zoning and, uh, and rent stabilization policies in Oregon. But, you know, what Oregon just passed is something that is a, a universal rent stabilization or universal rent control. The, a lot of the problem with uh, rent control as it manifests in the cities that still have it is that it's tied to a particular apartment. Uh, and it ends up protecting a, a, a small number of, of renters, which is great, uh, but at the expense of folks that are now paying a, through the nose for rent or really struggling to find a place because it's, for whatever reason, uh, and, you know, doesn't apply to every, uh, every home. If you can have a universal rent control policy where you know, every building is, uh, has some certainty locked into it, well, that ends up making life better for almost everybody and the uh at least everybody that i think folks on the on the left care about making life better for that ends up making the whole thing work a lot better than having a you know rent control rent stabilization that's just attached to a particular unit uh we've also seen a couple of uh of impressive contributions to uh building more uh social housing and public housing uh, through you know, housing bonds and uh, proposals in a variety of states. I think California is uh, proposing to make a, a huge investment uh, in, in housing. I also think there's a, a fairly cool thing that you know, I've got a lot of critiques of Gavin Newsom, although he's doing cool things on, on single payer in, in California. He's also doing cool things on tying transportation dollars to uh, meeting housing uh, goals in, in each city. So what he's saying is if you're not building enough uh, housing that people can afford, if you're not building enough homes to actually meet the need in your town, then you're not going to get the housing dollars that you've been expecting. Uh, that's great because, one, it encourages exclusionary communities uh, who otherwise are really resistant to change to go along with it because they really, really want that transportation uh, money. They're, that's something that they bank on on a, you know, a year-in, year-out basis. Uh, the second is that exclusionary communities end up uh, spending a lot more transportation money, uh, certainly disproportionately, because these exclusionary communities require a lot more driving. They're much more spread out. And so uh, we disproportionately spend transportation money in those communities. If you can incentivize them to build housing near jobs, it ends up saving the transportation budget uh, and incentivizing them to create homes that, uh, that working people and struggling people can, uh, can afford.
There's also one more cool thing I'll talk about. Uh, in a community in Maryland, uh, there's a intent for a, a true social housing project where we have, it's a publicly owned, it's mixed income, uh, where higher income people are subsidizing rent for lower income people. This is uh, folks who have a little bit more money to spend, would like to spend it in sort of a public option for housing. Uh, that creates a, a great context for upward mobility for lower income folks, because mixed income is generally better for uh, educational outcomes, for economic outcomes. And the it approaches something, at least to the flavor of universality, which is one of the things that we really need when we're trying to, uh, to entrench programs is having it benefit not just folks uh, at the highest levels or the lowest levels, but everybody, because that makes it much harder to take away. Those are at least a couple of the coolest things I think are happening across the country uh, at the local and state level. Hey, everyone. I'm Nathan. And I'm Dylan. And as you know, Millennial Politics is totally independent and volunteer run. That means every podcast you listen to, every article you read, and every tweet you see is created by a dedicated team of volunteers. It also means that we can say what we want to say when we want to say it, but we rely on listeners just like you to support our work. We hope you'll consider supporting us by subscribing at patreon.com slash millenpolitics. Every dollar will go directly towards our mission of shining a spotlight on progressive candidates, causes, and organizations. And if you subscribe at the ambassador level or more, we'll send you a free copy of How Our Government Really Works Despite What They Say. It's an award-winning book about the intricacies of American government. And you'll get to join our exclusive ambassador Slack channel and get to hang out with us all day, every day. I pretty much live there. So if that appeals to you, come join us. And we want to give a very special shout out to our executive producer, Greg Stevens, and our producers, Brad Tracy and Renee Garcia-Brown. Again, if you want to continue hearing interviews and conversations just like this one, we hope you'll visit patreon.com slash millenpolitics. That's patreon.com slash M-I-L-L-E-N politics and join the movement. All right, now back to the show. And so you mentioned California tying this to transportation. How would you say that housing interacts and intersects with other big progressive priorities like transportation and the environment and healthcare? Yeah, I mean, there's, uh, there's a ton, right? Um, I'll start with transportation and the climate. Uh, Alex Baca wrote a really great piece in Slate that everybody should read. Um, about the need for a Green New Deal to have an, uh, a housing-focused agenda. Uh, Data for Progress is actually planning on uh, putting out some stuff with Alex about this in, in the relatively near future, uh, along with a, a great guy named Jamal Green and, and Greg Carlock, who uh, is really the architect of uh, Data for Progress's contributions to the Green New Deal. The Right now, the way that housing works and, and with the, the exclusionary communities that we have in, in cities and suburbs, it requires a tremendous amount of driving. Now, there are some folks that say, well, just electrify every vehicle and we'll deal with that entirely. You know, we're going to need to electrify every vehicle. We also need to take cars off the road because if we just took every car on the road, switched it out for a, a, an electric engine and, and got rid of the internal combustion engine, that would so dramatically increase the electricity consumption in the country that renewables at any scale we can imagine in the, the near to even kind of distant future, it's going to be basically impossible to meet that electrical need with uh, zero carbon technology. So we need to, while electrifying every vehicle, take vehicles off the road. 
the easiest way to do that is to have housing closer to uh, to sh- like shopping, to jobs. You need to create 15-minute communities where folks can walk, bike, and take transit to meet their needs rather than exclusively drive. It is impossible to create transit and bike-connected communities uh, at any scale when you have uh, these exclusionary uh, zoned homes that are super spread out, aren't connected, and really just don't have enough people living in community close enough together to, uh, to make a, a bus line, uh, certainly a functional bus line, possible. Certainly not a light rail line or, or you know, anything that approaches more rapid transit. In order to meet our, our climate goals and our environmental goals, we need to have people living in you know, uh, more affordably sized, uh, more community-oriented and, and uh, densely nestled homes. You need to have uh, density that more approaches Paris, uh, France, than Paris, Texas. The, so that's, I think, at least how it intersects with, uh, with climate. And happy to expand on that if you like. How it impacts healthcare, I think, is is fairly obvious. Uh, you know, and this is uh, when we start talking about housing and homelessness, they're they're in, intensely connected. Um, it hasn't been where a lot of my focus has been, so I want to be humble about the uh, the amount that I, I speak on it. But you know, I'm aware that in the places that we, uh, that communities have tried a housing first solution to uh, to chronic homelessness, the uh, healthcare costs associated with homelessness, which are ample, uh, go down dramatically. And it ends up being uh, less expensive to the public, to the average taxpayer, to uh, pay for a uh, no-questions-asked home for every chronically homeless person than it is to not do that because they end up in the emergency room, which ends up driving up healthcare costs and gets passed along to the public sector. So simply housing every person uh, housing being one of the biggest determinants of health, will end up making our healthcare costs dramatically cheaper, which makes insuring everybody far more doable. And could you expand a bit on the intersection with the environment, and especially in the context of the Green New Deal? Sure. Uh, well, one, I mean, the Green New Deal is is incredible and wonderful, and uh, and I think that basically everybody involved. Uh, recognizes that it's a it's a work in progress uh the all of the components around renewables uh around uh around r&d especially the uh sort of new proposal that people are putting forward in terms of r&d investments in the green new deal are, are are fantastic and one other place that the green new deal needs to uh to provide more focus is public transportation uh and active transportation uh, so that means uh, creating communities that are walkable. Uh, not just there are sidewalks, but you can have a, a quick walk or, uh, or you know, take a, a wheelchair or uh, you know, other pedestrian transportation to, uh, to a restaurant or to a supermarket or to your doctor or to your job. Uh, almost anything that you understand needing to commute to or drive to now, we should be able to design our communities to, uh, to have that all within effectively 15 minutes. It should also be bikeable. And it should be connected by uh, high-quality transit. That's buses, uh, light rail, and uh, you know, streetcars, and, and other 
public transportation where we are all riding the same thing together, uh, running every 15 minutes or more. That's impossible if you don't have a lot more people living closer together. The only way that you have a lot more people living closer together is if you have a lot more homes in a smaller amount of space. Right now, in the vast majority of buildable uh, residential land in the country, and basically in every city, the only thing you can put on a plot of land is a detached single-family home that is the, uh, the most energy-intensive, uh, the most expensive, and the most carbon-intensive possible thing you can put there. Uh, if you put two or three or four or six smaller but still very livable homes on that single plot of land, that makes the lived experience less expensive. It makes people engage in community more because you are living close to each other and because you have many more people living much closer to each other that makes it possible to connect it with transit that will uh we've seen across the country where this is done that spurs the creation of of restaurants and doctors offices and jobs in that vicinity so the this is a real win-win on on housing it more affordable uh, housing that is uh, more affordably sized, that has uh, multiple homes on a single plot of land, also has the added tremendous benefit of making low-carbon transportation possible in that community. And you've been analyzing the housing policy of 2020 Democratic presidential candidates. Could you tell us a little bit about that? And what the very existence of this policy means for the upcoming primary. First off, uh, you know, a, a year after writing that uh, piece in the nation with Sean, I'm really excited to see three major heavy hitter Democratic candidates uh, coming out with and really, you know, putting at the forefront of their campaigns housing policies, rental housing policies. That's really cool. We haven't seen that before. That's a really exciting moment. Uh, the uh so we're seeing those from Kamala Harris, from Cory Booker, and from Elizabeth Warren. I expect we will also see them from at least Julian Castro uh and Bernie Sanders, and, and I expect we'll end up seeing them from from other candidates, if only to to knock it totally left in the dust. Like I said, uh renters are a huge portion of the Democratic electorate and the Democratic base. And uh, any candidate that isn't speaking to their lived experience, by the way, it is everybody's largest expense then those folks are going to miss out on a political opportunity. Uh, so it's just really exciting to, to see them do it. And I think they're, uh, they're making a, a good and savvy political decision to be uh, including rental housing at the forefront of their uh, policy agendas. So I'm going to start with what I think is the weakest, and I will get to the strongest. Uh, I'll, I will say uh, at this, uh, the, the outset of this, uh, I really hope that uh, every critique that I'm going to make about everybody's policy ends up... Uh, being corrected, and I'm not going to hold it against anybody uh, that they haven't gotten the policy right out the gate. Um, but to start, I think that Kamala Harris's uh, housing policy is the weakest. Uh, it is exclusively refundable tax credits for renters who are paying more than 30% of their income. Now, I don't want to undersell that entirely. That will be real financial help that is directly experienced for struggling people. Uh, that's good. 
The problem is it doesn't do anything else to affect the, the structure of the housing market and of the housing system. So if all you do is you say, well, if you're paying uh, you know, 40% of your income, I'm going to give you 10% of your income uh, to pay that rent. So you pay no more than 30%. What that does, that gives your landlord a huge incentive to say, well, all right, well, I'm going to have you pay 60% of your income on your rent and not going to hurt you at all, but I'm just going to take and take and take taxpayer money uh, and get fat and happy off of it. That's, uh, that's not great. I don't think that's her intent in putting together the policy. I do think it, it potentially reflects a, uh, a lack of serious consideration to the policy, uh, particularly since she's from California and California is ground zero for uh, the housing shortage. Um, it's, it's pretty baffling to me uh, that she hasn't uh, addressed any mechanism of building enough homes. Um, I also think the, you know, she has, uh, I think to her credit, really centered race in her campaign and the, the history of why there aren't enough homes in California is intimately linked with white supremacy. Apartment bans, exclusionary zoning was created to keep people of color outside of neighborhoods. It went hand in hand with redlining. Uh, to not include that at all is pretty baffling to me. Uh, to go to Cory Booker's next. Uh, Cory Booker's also has tax credits and, to his credit, has incentives uh, to to change and and end those exclusionary zoning patterns and uh, do other uh, really solid things to remake the the housing market in uh, in communities. That is definitely helpful and should work better. If you have tax credits for cost burden renters and you are uh, creating a context where it's much more likely that a lot more homes are built and a lot more homes are built at an affordable level. Well, that is going to create a, a much larger constraint on landlords to make it much less likely that they are going to just uh, continually raise rates willy-nilly, or raise rents willy-nilly, and uh, take the, uh, you know, the public sector to the cleaners. Though his bill is, is basically those two things. I think it is for sure stronger than Kamala Harris's bill. Uh, also has a variety of things it needs to work on, all of which you can read at Data for Progress. Uh, Elizabeth Warren's is, uh, is certainly the strongest, although it also has some areas uh, for growth. Uh, Warren's bill, first and foremost, dramatically expands the amount of money that is put into uh, affordable housing in the country. Uh, I think it's, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but it's hundreds of billions of dollars over over 10 years that go into uh, building new affordable housing, which is great. It's tremendous. It's not nearly big enough, but it's a really good start. She also really aggressively uh, is working to deal with ending exclusionary zoning in communities, which is fantastic. Those two things combined uh, should have a uh, marvelous impact on restructuring the housing system in the country and making it dramatically more difficult for uh, for landlords to to raise rents at uh, at a you know a higher and affordable level at all because there's so many other options for tenants to uh, to walk away from their landlord. It's sort of akin to strengthening the hand of, of unions in uh, negotiation with their employer. 
uh, if you make it, uh, if you restructure the market to give uh, tenants power in the negotiation with their landlord, which is what Warren's bill does, uh, that's going to make rents cheaper naturally, just in the same way that if you strengthen uh, unions, it makes wages and, uh, and benefits better naturally. Warren's bill does a couple other things as well that are really cool. Uh, she has a program to essentially uh, counteract or at least uh, make some amends for redlining, the practice that made it impossible for uh, black, fa- uh, black families to buy homes in the 20th century. She has a, a, a laser-targeted approach to identifying first-time homeowners who have lived in uh, previously redlined neighborhoods for uh, a decent period of time and provide those, uh, those homeowners with down payment assistance so that they can buy their homes and, uh, and begin building that nest egg. Uh, I think that's really exciting. You know, I'm not, uh, I am personally a homeowner. I'm grateful to be a homeowner. Uh, I don't think that incentivizing homeownership is, uh, is great economic uh, or social policy over the long term. But trying to correct that historical wrong, I think, is, uh, is pretty bold and pretty exciting. She, she's also expanded protections uh, through the Fair Housing Act for a variety of folks that are currently getting uh, pretty screwed over in, uh, in rental housing, which is also really impressive. Uh, things that we would like to see from all of these candidates is either a much larger investment in affordable housing or... Uh, or you know, an investment in affordable housing and public housing and social housing at all. You know, we know that there's uh, about a 7 million home shortfall for just the lowest income population in America, what we call extremely low income. These are people for whom the private market will never uh, deliver an affordable home. We need to build them permanently affordable homes. Warren's bill, to her credit, builds about 3 million. Well, we've got seven, a 7 million uh, shortfall. So she should at least double her investment, if not a little bit more than that. And both Booker and Harris should have an investment of the size that will actually meet a 7 million home need. Uh, now, my understanding is they set the, the 3 million, 3.5 million goal because that was the biggest thing that uh, they believed that nonprofit developers could handle. So that's where they set the threshold. Uh, one of the things we need to do is we make it le- need to make it legal to build public housing again. Uh, it's currently illegal for the federal government to build new units of public housing. The federal government is the best setup institution to build new units of affordable housing. Uh, of affordable housing, and we need to legalize that and then put the resources into uh, into building that housing that's going to need. If it, if that means. Three million or three and a half million of the units are built through nonprofit uh, developer partners, and the other three and a half or four million units are built through just the public sector. Great, that's actually super exciting. It also probably makes sense for uh, every uh, for every one of these campaigns to create some kind of incentive or encouragement for states and, and localities to implement some sort of rent stabilization. You know, over the long term, it's, uh, you know, it's really hard to fully predict when a housing market is going to explode and start gentrifying, uh, displacing people, 
and making it incredibly difficult to live in a city where good-paying jobs are exploding. The best way to handle that is to have some kind of uh, reasonable ceiling uh, above which landlords can't raise rents. So they can't just simply kick tenants out uh, when they think they can make more money uh, by jacking rents. Creating some sort of incentive for communities to take that on is a thing that, uh, that none of the candidates are currently doing, and all of them should. Again, on its own, that probably doesn't do nearly enough, but is a thing that should be included. I got a bunch of other uh, sort of nuanced critiques uh, of each bill and uh, data for progress. And my uh, uh, co-author of the, the analysis and, and uh, my general partner in crime at Data for Progress Housing, uh, Pete Harrison and I are planning on putting out a sort of uh, a, a list and, and a set of recommendations for every 2020 candidate to run on in terms of rental housing, which is forthcoming, but, but broadly, uh, that's what we think. And let's say that a Democrat wins the White House. What problems would they face trying to implement a progressive housing agenda? Uh, I mean, one, it's really big. You know, what we saw in 2009 when, the, uh, when we were trying to plug the hole created by the, the Bush administration and the, uh, the beginning of the Great Recession, um, and you know, the meltdown of the housing market, that we didn't do uh, a nearly large enough stimulus package, basically because uh, cautious, moderate Democrats uh, weren't willing to, to pony up the money that it actually required. And, you know, Republicans are nihilists uh, who, and white supremacists who really only wanted to undermine the black president, and they and, you know, opposed it in lockstep. So it was basically impossible to get a large enough stimulus package for the Senate, I think that that's a, uh, a not insignificant chance in uh, uh, you know, trying to pass a, a housing agenda in 2021. It's very unli- extremely unlikely that there will be a, a 60 uh, progressive votes in the Senate in 2021. The, I think if, uh, if Democrats are smart, they'll either abolish the filibuster or uh, put a lot of things into a reconciliation package. I think that's probably the, the easiest way to do a lot of this because so much of it runs through the budget. You could create a ton of affordable housing and you know, public and social housing through the reconciliation process. You could also probably create incentives for uh, ending exclusionary zoning through the, that reconciliation process as well. Uh, so I think you will end up with just like weak need, moderate resistance. Um, you're also going to get resistance from a variety of folks that are making a lot of money off of the system. Uh, they're, you know, at the, at the local level, you see a, a ton of affluent property owners who are scared of any change that they think might uh, decrease their property values. And you see uh, large landlords who oppose anything that's going to decrease their ability to make a huge profit off of their, uh, their properties. And I expect that you will see some kind of organized resistance from that. I do think that there's a, a huge uh, opportunity doing these things at the state and federal level uh, because it uh, does dramatically diffuse the ability of NIMBY, that is not in my backyard, uh, you know, sort of fundamentally conservative activists, 
from derailing things that are going to have a significant positive impact for, for working people as it comes to housing. So I think attacking these problems at the national level might actually be much easier politically than attacking them at the local level. I suppose the, the one other thing that Democrats should consider as they're, they're going about passing this is thinking about what's the, the sugar that goes with the medicine of restructuring the, uh, the housing market and the housing system. Change is always scary for people. So what can we do to help ease them along? I think those sort of uh, renter uh, subsidies are one of those things. But I think it's, uh, it'd be, it is wise, and you know, we consider this in the recommendations that we're putting forward, to include things that you know, we know are going to be uh, political sweeteners for, uh, for folks that may otherwise be resistant to this change. By and large, a progressive housing agenda is incredibly popular. So I'm not especially worried about that. But because there'll be fear-mongering about anything that uh, a progressive administration does, you need to have some things that the American people immediately feel in their pocketbooks as benefiting them. And, uh, and that should create the space to actually make this foundational change. And what can our listeners do to pressure candidates at every level to to put forth a progressive housing policy agenda, and then when they're in office, follow through on their promises. One is get involved with uh, your local you know, tenants' rights group or, or, neighbors, or neighbors' group. or uh, you know, Almost every community is going to have a couple of different community organizations that is focused on attacking some element of the housing crisis, and some that are focused on attacking a lot of elements of the housing crisis. You know, you have uh, East Bay for Everyone in, in Oakland. You have the, the just newly created uh, socialist city uh, that uh, just recently spun out of uh, Yimby socialists in the Bay Area, uh, both of which are, you know, uh, I think you have a variety of DSA chapters that also think this way. Some that don't, but a lot that do, that are approaching uh, a kitchen sink approach to the housing price, uh, the housing crisis. Getting involved with them will uh, give you an opportunity to use collective power to pressure candidates, pressure representatives, to adopt positions, and then you know once they get into office to push them to take action. Tweet at, email, uh, give some kind of you know digital communication uh, at the candidates that you haven't seen adequate housing proposals from to ask them what their housing proposal is. There are people at every campaign at this stage that are looking at the Twitter every day and are giving feedback to the folks at the highest echelons of the campaign when they're seeing trends come to pass. So, you know, I think it's reasonable to uh, tweet at Kamala Harris and, and ask, you know, where is your agenda for ending apartment bans? Where is your agenda for public and social housing? I think you can do the, the same thing for basically every candidate and for the large number of candidates that don't have a housing agenda at all, then you can ask the very legitimate question of where is your rental housing agenda? Once they're in office, I, I think it's the, uh, the things that you've seen be effective. Uh, show up every time there's an action. Call your representative every time there's a, there's a need. Uh, you know, subscribe to the, the variety of lists that do action alerts when you know, major policy is on the line. And then step up and do those action alerts. Go and, and visit your representatives. The you know, be an an active, engaged citizen 
not just up and up and to and through the election. It's great to be an activist to make sure that your uh, your chosen candidate gets elected. But you know the th- the place where we know that energy almost always drops off, if not always drops off, is after the candidate gets elected. Folks feel that their job is done, and then the actual hardest thing of changing policy, folks stay home. So make sure that you show up, call everybody that you can, uh, pressure every uh, elected representative that you uh, that you have any sway over to uh, you know adopt progressive housing policy. That's the best shot we've got. And how can folks learn more about this policy and where can they find you online? You can, uh, you can find me primarily on, on Twitter, um, at Henry Kramer. That's uh, K-R-A-E-M-E-R, sort of an unusual spelling of the name. Uh, I write at Data for Progress, which is dataforprogress.org. Uh, and I have my own blog, which is at henrykramer.com. Okay, awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on to the podcast today and talking about this really important issue with us. And we hope to catch up with you in the future to hear about what's happening with housing policy. Thanks, Jordan. I hope it wasn't too rambly. And I really appreciate y'all having me on. We loved it. And to our listeners, if you want to hear more great conversations with folks like Henry, make sure to follow Millennial Politics on social media, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, and tune into the Progressive Radio Network every Tuesday at 8 p.m. Eastern to hear our newest episodes. Thanks for listening.